Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there was a trend in uh, kind of the mid to late 1800s of fiction writers to uh, get their main characters into terribly precarious situations, Uh, horrible situations that, uh, in fact, as an author, they they found themselves getting into such dire straits with these characters that there was no possible way out of the problems. Uh, had to do with, uh, you know, crisis of uh, finances, crisis of health, crisis of uh, medical bills uh, stacking up, on and on and on. The crises of these characters uh, would stack up and it'd be a difficult situation, so much so that the author had no way of remedying the problem until one of them came up with a device. The long-forgotten rich uncle who died and left their entire inheritance to the main character. In fact, uh, these uh, uncles who passed are often on the other side of the globe, maybe in Africa, Australia, someplace exotic, uh, and the characters couldn't remember this uncle. And uh, lo and behold, uh, after months and months of travel, the, the letter, the will arrives at the doorstep at the most convenient time possible to receive the grand fortune. And then there's great rejoicing and everybody's happy because uh, the problem's resolved and we won't even miss the uncle because we forgot he lived anyways. And uh, very little downside in the story. Of course, this kind of device is frowned upon in modern fiction because uh, uh, due to, uh, I guess, the technology and the information age in which we live, long lost rich uncles just don't seem to happen much anymore. And so when somebody uses this device in literature, we think, oh, that was cheesy. That was a cheap way to get out of that situation. In fact, uh, we've become all pretty skeptical of rich dead relatives leaving us their inheritance, haven't we? Because of Internet cafes in Africa filled with people that are writing letters that say pretty much that same thing. And they show up in our email And it's broken English and says something along the lines of, Mr. Wincop, your dead lost uncle died this past week and he left for you $10 billion. Just send 1995 to, you know, it's like, I know my, I don't know, Afro-India is where that person was from. And you just wonder, uh, this works? It must work because apparently they'd stop it if it didn't work. Apparently there's enough desperation in the world that people will send 1995 to a P.O. box in Liberia hoping that the government of Liberia will release these tens of millions of dollars from the dead rich uncle to us. I mean, it's got to work. There must be some who take the bait. There must be some who send it or else it would stop. I, I think it's called supply and demand. You know all those catalogs you get in the mail? 
they must work or else they wouldn't send them. Somebody must be rifling through those. And you're if, that, if you're that person, thank you for all the junk mail I get. But they must work. Somebody must order out of those or they would stop. And it's interesting to me, this whole idea of this rich relative who leaves us the estate, who leaves us the interest in the inheritance. And I think the reason that this is so appealing is because our world is a desperate place. And much of the time we live lives of quiet desperation. We live lives just on the, the precipice of calamity. Right on the edge of utter chaos, of utter ruin. I mean, take Christmas, for instance. (laughs) January, there's these things called credit card bills that will show up in your mailbox. Nowadays, you don't even have to wait for those, though. You can go online and you can check and see how much you owe and be depressed for a while. But there's always this reminder of there's a cost to our merriment. There's, there's an expense involved in bringing joy to little ones' faces and food to ourselves. And much of the time, Americans go into debt at Christmas time to experience this. And it's about this time of year that we all start hoping and praying that there's some rich relative we long forgot that those emails would be true, that there would just be a courier that shows at the door and ushers us in a will that says, you're it. You're the relative who's been chosen to inherit tens of millions. You know, that's not even that much anymore. Hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Because we can all spend tens of millions rather quickly. What's a combine cost nowadays, right? I think the whole idea of that story is actually uh, gospel to us. It's good news to us. And the reason it's good news to us is because it's mimicking a story that's in the New Testament that Paul tells. He tells this story and it actually has a lot of um, reference to Christmas. It has a lot of references to Christmas, to the coming of baby Jesus. And it actually is in his book called Galatians. It's not really a book. It's a letter. Um, And it's a letter that he wrote to the people in Galatia, which was like a, a region of ancient Greece. And he sent this letter to them, answering some questions, explaining some things to them and telling them who they are. Because we all need reminders, don't we, sometimes, of who we are? And what I want to do, I forgot, I I decided as I was reading and praying about this, I really want to back up a little bit so some of the words aren't going to be on the screen because uh, I decided it's best to start at chapter 3, verse 26 of Galatians rather than where I thought I was going to start. So actually, verse chapter 3, verse 26. Paul says this, he's right in the Galatians and he has these metaphors that he's using. And we're going to unpack these for a moment uh, just to see how we can understand this and better understand this. He says, so in Christ Jesus, 
You are all children of God through faith. Now, notice there's a qualifier there. A lot of people like to say, we're all children of God. But Paul says, yes, you're all children of God. How? Through faith. A lot of people just say we're children of God, end of story, end of uh, sentence. But that's not how Paul, that's not how the Bible uh, identifies and defines you as being a child of God. You are a child of God through faith. If you don't have faith, newsflash, you're not a child of God. At least not in the way that Paul is talking about here. So now we need to further understand, okay, how's he talking about us? For all of you who were baptized into Christ, that's the demonstration of faith, that you get baptized. You are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Here are the metaphors he's using. When you think of baptism, you think of water, you think of immersion, you think of getting wet, and you think of getting out of the water and getting dried off and changing your clothes. And Paul is pushing that metaphor, and he is saying, when you changed clothes after baptism, in baptism, as a result of baptism, you put on Christ. You thought you were putting on J.C. Penney. You thought you were putting on Old Navy. You were putting on Christ. That's what happened when you got baptized. You put on Christ. Now you are a child of God through faith, having been baptized and putting on Christ. Pretty cool exchange, wouldn't you say? And he goes on and he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now we think, okay, I don't know any Jews. I'm pretty sure everybody I know is a Gentile. Why is this a big deal? And we're going to see in a moment that Paul is referencing the exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt. And it's a metaphor. It's a story that he references again and again in his writings, but especially here. And he's writing to Galatia where there are a bunch of Greek people, a bunch of Gentiles. Goyim. The people who aren't followers of Yahweh. The people who aren't a people elsewhere, it says in the Bible. And he says something just radical here. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, this is so radical because Paul is a a good Jew. I mean, by his own account, he says amongst the Hebrews, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was one of the best Jews there possibly are. And he kind of, and and not just him, but the Jews of that day and age kind of would lord it over non-Jewish people. You've met folks like that, haven't you? People who lord stuff over. Sometimes that happens at churches. Church people can lord things over non-churchy people. You know, like all of the sit down, stand up, fight, fight, fight stuff that happens at church. And, well, the, we should leave the fight, fight, fight out, right? But the, the sit up, stand up, kneel, all the, the bells and smells in church world sometimes. I mean, all those things, they become something that can trip up people who aren't churchy people. And the churchy people can lord it over the non-churchy people. 
And the Jewish people had a tendency to do this. Actually, tendency is probably not a strong enough word. They were bigots. And not just them. I mean, uh, let's not be too hard on the Jews. Uh, Most people groups are rather bigoted towards other people groups that are different, aren't we? Just look at our own nation recently. In Ferguson, Missouri, New York City. It's racism. It's bigotry against those who are different. And Paul says that all of those who have, through faith, become children of God... See where he's going with this? He's saying, y'all got the same daddy. All of these people through faith who are now children of God, who have been baptized into Christ, have been clothed with Christ. And he says, that should erase. Those truths about you should erase every distinctive element about you. Starting, number one, with nationality. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. Now he's going to push it even further. And in the ancient world, this would be um, fighting words. Neither slave nor free. Wait a minute. It's bad enough that you're already saying that I'm not. You know, there's not a distinction between me and those people. Now you're going to say there's not a distinction between me and those people. You know, or as Tim Hawkins, his mom at Walmart, when she would walk around, she would say, good Lord, people. Right. Oh, good Lord. Look at her. Oh, good Lord. You know, the good Lord people. The good Lord people that you think about, there's no distinction. If they have trusted Christ through faith, they are no longer a good Lord person. There's no distinction, no difference between Jew and Gentile, slave or free. And Paul is going to push it one step further, neither male nor female. Guy's off his nut. And he's not referencing that, you know. There aren't differences. He's saying that in that ancient society, men lorded it over women. Literally. A wife was a man's property in those days. There was far, there there was absolutely hardly any equality between male and female in the ancient world. And even in our culture's history, There's a women's suffrage movement. Even when the beginning of this nation, when they penned all men are created equal, they meant it. The men folk. Not the women folk. Now, the seed of the idea was there. And eventually it got reinterpreted and and they decided, yeah, women are equal with men. They should have equal standing under the law. And there's still a lot of discussion, isn't there, at a political level, that women should get equal pay for equal work. And there's all this discussion about equality. And 2,000 years ago, Paul said, in Christ, through faith, through baptism, when you're clothed with him and you're now God's children, there is no distinction between male and female. 
They have the same exact standing before their father. I'm a dad. And I hope and pray my kids all know that they have equal footing with me. That I don't play favorites with the boys over the girl or vice versa. I mean, we have that whole story, right, of Joseph and his coat to tell us that playing favorites is really stupid. Not the whole point of the story, but clearly one of the parts we can walk away from with it. And we should see here that God says that there is equality amongst all of his kids. Now, Paul goes on further in verse 29. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Not just the Jewish people are heirs of Abraham. It's everybody who belongs to Christ, says Paul. And then what's going to be on a screen in chapter four, verse one, it says, what I am saying is that as long as heirs are underage, I have three underage heirs at my house. This applies to them. Listen up, wine coop kids. They are no different from slaves. I like that verse. You know how my kids feel? They don't like that verse. They accuse me of, you know, hey, you got a free workforce here. We feel like slaves. Yeah, Paul said right here, as long as the heirs are under age, they are no different from slaves. It's in the Bible. I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit said, that's good Bible printed. <laughs> okay, I'm getting lost. Although they own the whole estate. They own the whole estate. That's the part the kids like. The parents like the slave part. The kids like the whole estate part. You see, when mom and dad pass, the estate will be the kids. And we know this to be true. They are subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by their fathers. So in other words, if I were to pass and I were to have a will, I would put in that will at this age, then they can manage the funds, but not till that point. Until that point, there's trustees, there's guardians. There are people who know the ways of the world better than my 16-year-old. They're going to make sure that the monies, that the estate, that all the things are well cared for and managed. And then when they are of age, there you go, kid. Good luck. Then he says, so also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Okay, now Paul is changing the metaphor. He's saying, yeah, that happens in the financial estate world, but it also is true spiritually. When you were underage, we were, sla- we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And what he's probably referencing there is the angels and the fallen angels. He's also, as we'll see in a moment, referencing the law, the Hebrew law. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. 
who redeemed those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. (laughs) That was Christmas right there. Did you catch it? Did you hear the jingle bells as you went through that verse real quick? When the fullness of time came about, when it was the kairos, that's the Greek word. It's a fun word to say, so I remember that one. When the full time happened, when it was the God elected, God chosen, the right time, at just the right moment, God sent his son. Now, there's two times in these verses that it says God sent. The first time he sent his son and he sent his son to who? The world. He sent his son to the world. He was born of a woman. That means he was fully man, fully God, sent into the world, and he was under the law. He was under the Hebrew law. He was sent to redeem us. He was sent so that we could experience adoption. See, Paul is telling these folks who they are. He is telling Gentiles, raise your hand if you're Gentile. He is talking to Gentiles. He says that if you aren't Jewish in the old system, the law system, there was very little hope for you. But when the fullness of time came about, he sent his son, born of a woman, to this world, born under the law, so that you might be Adopted. You know that rich uncle on the other side of the world? It's true. I mean, not the Liberian one where they send you an email. The rich uncle that's actually from another world is true. Actually, it's an even closer relation than uncle. It's older brother. You have an older brother from heaven because you, if you've placed your faith in Christ and have been baptized and have been clothed in Christ, are now adopted as sons and daughters. He goes on. Because you are his sons, I mean, what implication does this have other than, wow, that makes me warm and fuzzy feeling. Because you are his sons, God sent, he sent something else, the spirit of his son into our hearts. The first time he sent his son into the world, this time he sent his spirit into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. I mean, the spirit comes into your heart and through this spirit, you know, you have a new father. You know, you have a right relationship with God, the father. And not just that, you have an intimate relationship with this father because that Aramaic word Abba, a lot of people go, yeah, that's that's for daddy. And I don't agree with that interpretation. I don't think that's how it was used in antiquity, but I think it's best to understand it's a word of endearment. It's a it's a it's an intimate word. And you have this intimate relationship 
with your new father. And then he says this. This is so important for us to hear because we don't always live this next part out. So you are no longer slaves. You ever have troubles living that part out? Not seeing yourself as a slave? A slave to sin? A slave to some kind of desires that are self-destructive? A slave to some kind of self-destructive behaviors or patterns? Uh, You have a tendency to sabotage the relationships you're in. You have a tendency to sabotage your finances. You have a tendency to self-destruct. I know I have this tendency. My wife would say it's probably more than a tendency. My kids would probably say it's more than a tendency. And there's oftentimes I live the life of a slave. I don't live the life of an adopted son. I live the life of a slave. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it to people like me who walk around in slavery and space out that God sent a spirit into my heart. You're a son. You're a daughter. So you are no longer slaves, but God's children. Now, he changes his pronouns here, and you're probably thinking, whoa, exciting. But this is important to hear. Up until this point, all of the pronouns have been second person plural. Okay, remind me what that means. All of the pronouns have been y'all to this point. You guys. Y'all, you guys, however, wherever you're from, however that works, it's plural. And at this point, Paul takes his bony little finger and it changes to second person singular. And he takes his bony little finger and he puts it in your face and he says, you are no longer slaves, but God's children. And since you are his children, he has made you also heirs. Like all of a sudden it gets really personal, gets really up in your grill, gets really You know, it's about you. That happens very few times in the New Testament. Far less than you'd think it would. And when it happens, yes, it's boring, but it's important. That's a rule of thumb for Bible interpretation. If it's weird or boring, it's important. That's weird to some of you. It's boring to most of us. But it's important because Paul is trying to tell his reader. It's like he's ripping himself out of the letter. He's grabbing the guy in a chokehold and it's saying, it's you. You're no longer a slave. You, you're a child of God. You, it's like as strong as he can make it without being there personally. It's like he, if he could, he would bring himself to them and lay hands on them rapidly and repeatedly in Jesus name. So that they would get it. You are no longer a slave. 
Now, this should be insanely good news to all of us. Because next week is July, Jan, July. Wouldn't it be fantastic if it was July? Wow, time warp. How cool is that? I'm going to like fall asleep for six months. It's January 1st. And there's going to be all this television ads about how you are a slave. There's going to be all these ads saying, you are in debt. You need a new car. You need to lose weight. You are about five stomach flus away from your ideal weight. You need to save more money. You need to get a new spouse. You need better kids. You, you, you. The world is going to pummel you with these messages. They're going to show up in ads on TV during those bowl games. They're going to show up in your mailbox with these flyers. They're going to show up in the paper. They're going to show up as you visit with friends and family. They're going to show up. They're going to be relentless. It's going to be bony little finger of the world telling you, you are a slave. You've messed it up, but 2015 can be better. Just try harder. And if you're like me, you go, I keep trying harder. And for three weeks, I'm good. If I could try harder, I would. I'd get her done. You know what the, the true thing you need to hear? You just heard it. You are no longer a slave, but children of God. You. Each of you. I don't have time to, you know, do this. And that's weird when pastors do that, right? You. If you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then get baptized. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus and been baptized, you've been clothed in Christ. You have a new older brother who has all the riches of heaven at his disposal. Better than that, he was sent here, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he could break off the law, so that through faith in him, you could have the Spirit sent, live in your heart, to let you know, hey, you're my child, Abba, Father kind of child. And not only that, you're no longer under the law. You're no longer under age. You're free. You don't have a trustee or a guardian anymore. You are free. You are an heir. You have a run of the place. You have run of the estate. It's yours in Christ. You're a kid. You're a child of God. No longer a slave. I mean, just think if you as a mental exercise over the next several days, as you watch bowl games and eat more food than you should and, and go to Walmart and get depressed. Just think if over the next few days you kept reminding yourself, I'm not a slave. I'm a child of God. What if every time you felt the bony finger of the world poke you in the ribs and say, you are a slave, you're a slave, you can't get her done. You can't do it. What if every single time you felt that prodding in your spirit, in your heart from those 
old guardians, from these spiritual elemental forces of the world, as Paul says. If every single time you felt that, you just went and said, nah, I'm not a slave. I'm a child of God. You think that would have an impact? I think it would. (laughs) It's worth a shot, don't you think? I mean, it was so important for us to be reminded of this that Paul wrote a note. And it was so important for him to write this that the note was saved for 2,000 years. And by the way, not a lot gets saved from 2,000 years ago. Thumb drives hadn't been thought of yet. The Holy Spirit made sure that today, this day when it was so cold and the roads were slick and you thought, I should just stay in bed. I won't be missed. They'll think I'm on holiday. I'll just stay home. And for whatever reason, the hound of heaven got you here. And for whatever reason, it was predetermined long ago by the spirit of the son who lives in your heart for those who have faith in Christ, that you would get here today to be reminded you're no longer a slave. You're a child of God. What if every time in the next few weeks, maybe for the year, every time you think my slave master tells me to do this, my slave master tells me to take another peek, take another drink, cheat a little bit more. You retorted, no. I am no longer a slave. I am a child of God. Give it a try. See what happens. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is be who you are in Christ. Be it. That's the interesting thing with who we are. We don't have to try very much to be who we are, <laughs> right? When I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh, man, I got to work at being Steve better. That's not going very well for me. I just get up and I'm like, hey, here I am again. Look in the mirror. Yep, there is me. Be who you are in Christ. A child of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that this was seen by you, by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. And this being one of the earliest documents we probably have from the New Testament era. And here we have a picture of the Trinity. The word's not there, but the people are. The Father, Abba, Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit. And here we see from early on in the church's history, in its writings, inspired by you that all three persons of the Trinity work in our lives. 
I pray, Father, that wherever we find ourselves today, and most of us find ourselves a slave to something, and we aren't because of Christ. And I pray that each one of us, whether we have been walking with Jesus for a long time or whether we just now are getting on the bandwagon with this, or maybe some of us, we're still not yet sure. But wherever we are, I pray, God, that through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we might all experience freedom from slavery and understand ourselves as children of God. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you commune with your elder brother, Jesus. Spirit of God, may you walk in freedom and gladness and great joy. Amen.